It ends up being a pro-colonial argument because of his stance against the decolonial impulse. He kind of names it as like social democracy, which he sees as the ultimate success story. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I'm Troy. And this week we are going to be talking about, I mean, I guess in a roundabout way we're going to be talking about the uh, ongoing conflict, uh, genocide in, uh, in Gaza um we are doing it tangentially i guess right i mean actually no we are directly but we're going to be doing it through the lens of a certain (laughs) defense of uh violent uh a a defense of violence right troy you said you wanted to talk about it in a roundabout way and i guess this is our foray into it through this waltzer essay you want to kind of share a little bit about it yeah so um this uh essay from michael waltzer in the atlantic um came out uh week or two ago. And it made the rounds on philosophy Twitter a little bit. And, and Walters, for those who, who don't know, is probably the foremost um, theorist of, of just war theory in the analytic philosophy, social political philosophy. So very, very well-known figure has been working on this for decades. Um, and so he came out with an essay in the Atlantic um, called Even the Oppressed Have Obligations. And I thought it was an interesting way of, of for us to get into discussion about the, um, you know, the Holy Land being on fire, uh, but through a sort of philosophical um, sort of, you know, tangent or, you know, something orthogonal to uh, the actual, we don't want to like get on here and, and talk about everything everyone else is talking about on like Chapo or That's whatever right. other podcast you might be listening to, right? We want to tackle it from a slightly different angle. So that's what we're going to do. Also, our expertise, we're not historians, we're not geopolitical analysts we're not you know middle east experts we're not genocide scholars we're not human rights scholars and to be fair most of the people commenting aren't either (laughs) (laughs) but but um but we know what our wheelhouse is and it's at the theoretical level and there are some important theoretical musings that either underpin a lot of those other common commentary approaches um or that also kind of if you zoom out that that really get discussed a lot uh in not just in academia but in the intelligentsia in the literary class uh, literati class i should say more more broadly and i think that's kind of our foray into this is looking at the kind of ideas behind a lot of um, people's rational reflections on this particular um, set of circumstances which is obviously you know an ongoing um generational after generational conflict. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And I will say, you know, you're totally right. Obviously we're not any of those different kinds of, uh, don't have that kind of professional status in other areas that would, that would sort of give us, um, the capacity to, you know, responsibly talk about the the legal issues and the international, uh, issues. But that said, I, I do want to point out that I think one thing that's really good about what's happening around discourse around this conflict is that, everybody's talking about it. I think that's actually really yeah. good. Sometimes you, you get this like kind of gatekeepy thing on the internet where it's like, oh, everyone became an expert on geopolitical issues in the last, you know, six weeks or whatever. And that, first of all, it's like, we don't have to be an expert to have 
an opinion about some fairly obvious things that are happening in the world. Um, but also, mm. it's really important in a democratic society for people to talk about important moral issues and, and issues related to justice um, and politics. And the fact that people are, are really energized by this and, and are talking about it is really good. It's actually, I think, a, a big part of why the, the tide has turned a little bit on this issue and sort of in just a general American discourse. And you can even see it reflected in the way politicians are sort of backtracking from certain things in the States. Um, it's because I think it's being talked about uh, widely by the public. And that's, I think, a really good thing, even if, you know, it's going to mean on many occasions people are, you know, bullshitting or, or speaking where they don't have any authority or any background knowledge. Generally, this is a good phenomenon, I think. Yeah, I mean, this obviously isn't the point of the episode, so not to elongate the introduction too much, but you hear people like Bhaskar Sankara, who I, I think he kind of traces his own history to the anti-war protests of the Iraq War that kind of really kind of refined and, and uh, honed his sensitivity towards geopolitical issues. And then obviously generations before you had... Um, you know, Vietnam was a huge one that radicalized a lot of people or that got a lot of people thinking about, you know, the role of empire in the world today sort of thing. So, you know, these types of these types of events that do get a lot of attention and, and that attract a lot of discussion, they do kind of yield. I mean, I don't know if this is like an instrumental way or me trying to kind of somehow put a gloss over something that's horrific, but it does yield a sort of growth and, and, and development of consciousness that attunes to things going on in the world and uh, that does kind of create certain certain positive positive outworkings. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's crass to say, but... No, I don't think so at all. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's the fact that the thing is horrific that animates people. So it's not like it's like, you know, taking it as entertainment or something like that. Yeah, although... Well, some people probably I, are doing that. I, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, although I do think that I just recently retweeted, if people haven't read the essay by Jean Baudrillard, well, there's a series of essays, actually. One was called, like, The Gulf War Will Not Happen, um, and then the kind of one that people, uh, or that will not take place, and then the one that people most people talk about is that The Gulf War Did Not Take Place. And uh, it's kind of an inflammatory title, but I just recommend that people go read it. I retweeted it, and I shared it, um, so it's open access. You can find it out there. And it kind of talks about you know, war in the media age. And of course he's writing in, you know, late eighties, early nineties and, um, about like kind of the, the video game mediatized imagery and what impact that has on, um, the kind of public transparent consumption of war images and, and what that means for, for kind of understanding the events that take place, the actual conflict. So I don't know, I think it's even more important to kind of have those kind of thoughts and, 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 think about the entertainment value that does take place through sensationalization and TikTok videos and, and Instagram stories and things like that. Cause there is, there is an entertainment value here. That's also kind of shitty. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that's certainly, that's certainly um, a factor and we can talk about this more in the main segment, but I, I do think probably, I mean, this is just sort of my estimation from things that I've seen. I think that's much less true in this instance than it was in many other past instances. Actually, there's a kind of progress that's happening. I think in that vein, um, towards people not viewing this as um, something that's, you know, libidinally, uh, like stoking libidinal um, expressions or whatever, right? But instead is is actually something they're taking seriously as the kind of thing that uh, Americans as taxpayers are sort of complicit in and have a sort of important role to play in um, taking a stand. So, I mean, that's, you know, 
Uh, put a, it's hard to make. Put a button on that. Yeah, because because I I think I do have a a pushback on that that I that I would want to get into. So if we can come back around to that in the main segment, because I definitely yeah I for definitely sure definitely think that there is is there is there's a counterpoint to that that I think um, I've noticed that that actually could be a shitty minute, but that uh, that wasn't my shitty minute, but that that yeah that I have seen where there is like some enjoyment and and how I'm seeing it play out, but I don't know. Right, so we'll, we'll take a, put a button and then we'll come back to it during the main segment. Okay. Uh, we do want to mention before we get into the, the shitty minute that we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And if you want to support us and get access to some extra goodies, you can do so again at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. So moving on to the good stuff, we always start every episode with the shitty minutes. For those who don't know, that's the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. Austin, you're on the clock this week. What's getting you down? Well, I've already tweeted about it. You've already sort of engaged with the tweet about it, but I figured we had to do an airing of grievances orally. Uh, I just think that Christian Zionism and its relationship towards Israel is fucking psychotic. And the more and more (laughs) I think about it, the more psychotic. Like, I mean, literally, it is insane. And I just had to to vent with it and figured we could have a little chat about it because we come out of a world that uh, that is seeped, that is sat, that is seeped, steeped in (laughs) fucking Christian Zionism. Um, And basically, it's this: it's that that you get these people like John Hagee who also lead one of, or at least are a part of, you know, the biggest financial lobbying group in support of, of, of Israeli policy in the United States, which is crazy to think about that the American evangelical lobby actually funds more money than even like APAC does, right? But so you have, so we're talking about, about powerful and really huge. And I think maybe people don't recognize it. Maybe people are starting to see how huge it is, but like this is a huge influential movement of these Christians, American evangelicals who support the state of Israel. But here's the rub. Here's the rub that nobody talks about. Like, Christians actually secretly hate the Jewish people <laughs> because they they reject the Messiah. And they may not think it. They might they might do some of this like, oh, you know, they it's just so sad that they're gonna be punished. But that's there's this gleeful joy underneath it, because it's like, but yeah, if any Jewish person died right now, they would burn in hell, according to the American evangelical. Forever. Torture, infinite pain, forever. Right? And then to make matters worse, the whole support of the nation of Israel is not because they actually love Israeli people. It's not because they love people of the Jewish diaspora and really like are, are like feel bad for the fact that these people have been fucking displaced throughout the world and had to face the horrors of the Holocaust. It's all instrumental, and not just the Holocaust, but for uh, you know generations prior to that, uh, through the, the the entire dating all the way back to fucking what is it? Persian, Persian, cap- Syrian captivity? Is that when it starts? Uh, Syrian, Babylonian, Egyptian, whatever captivity. Um, <laughs> there were three, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, all three. Yeah. They don't care about the people that have been displaced. They don't. What they care about is getting the gang back together so that they can build their temple so that they can ultimately be destroyed when Jesus returns. And yeah, 144,000 of them will be saved. But that's like 
what, 1% of the humans, but the other human beings will all again be destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire to burn and be tortured forever. There's no love. It's psychotic. It's psychotic. And then, and then what's so funny is obviously like, you know, uh, Jewish rabbis and shit know this, but, and so I do, I do wonder like what, if you're a Jewish rabbi or you're like a Zionist, and you're like hanging out with Christians, like these evangelicals, like the John Hagees and shit like that. You know that they think that about you, right? Like, you know that that these people don't actually love you. Like, you know that they hate you. And you're like, but that's cool. Like, like we'll, we'll engage in this transactional relationship, even though you think that we're going to be fucking destroyed forever. Like, there's this, it's just, it's so fucking twisted, and it's so fucking insane. And what I what I wish would happen is that we, I, I did see a little bit of a report from Lee Fong, who was kind of talking to congresspersons, and basically was like, hey, you know, how much does your eschatology impact your, uh, your kind of political policy positions and things like that? And he was kind of pinning them on it. But what I would love to see is I'd love to see, you know, like a moderator at a debate or something like that be like, okay, so how many of you uh, presidential candidates or how many of you, you know, Congress people or whatever, how, do you believe literally in the second coming of Jesus? And they raise their hands and I'd be like, okay, so you support Israel. And they'd be like, yeah, and I'd be like, but, but what is that, what's going to happen to Israel when Jesus comes back? Can you explain that? And like, what would happen with a Jewish person now if they died? Like, like you, you, you can admit that you actually think that they're going to burn in eternal torment forever. Well, they, right? they wouldn't say like, that. Like I just wish that they would. No, they would never. They would. They would have some sort of like. They would. They would just use the kind of political like we support the nation of Israel because you know if you bless them then 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 we'll be blessed and they're our allies and then I'd be like no 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 back to the point what do you think is going to happen to Israel once <laughs> Jesus returns like I want to know like. You believe in the literal interpretation uh, of, of Revelation, well, the fucking Schofield interpretation of Revelation, right? Like, so what's going to happen? And just keep pressing them, you know? I just, it's because it's psychotic. It's insane. Because whenever I hear these people, they're like, we stand with Israel. And you have these, these, these like American evangelicals that are going over to Israel to help with like farming and stuff like that. And they're like, you know, you got to serve Israel because we love them. And I'm like, but you don't. <laughs> you really do not. And, and, and it's, it's like, it's crazy. It's like I'm living in crazy town. And I, I just, I, I don't understand why more people aren't aware of it, of, of literally how crazy it is. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things to say here. I mean, one, it's not at all. I mean, we wonder like, what do Zionists think when they're, when they're dealing with people who are, who are treating them purely as instruments for their own, you know, insane apocalypticism. And it's like, well, well they're getting shitloads of money, so they're kind of cool with it. Well, yeah, I mean, but also, <laughs> they're like, okay. they're, they're, I mean, Zionists have for a long time had no problem dealing with people who hate them for temporary means or for temporary successes, right? They're literally like teaming yeah. up with Marine Le Pen, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, who the, the founder of that fucking party uh, was basically a Nazi. Yeah, so like that's that's you know whatever gets them what they want politically, everything else you know be damned. Um, and then also there's you know the strong consistency between uh, white nationalist politics uh, and nationalist politics generally and Israeli nationalism. I mean it's you know in the Marine Le Pen case it's France for the French and Israel for the Jews. <laughs> that's you know that that's actually mm. not an anti-Zionist take, kind of a little bit, right? Um, additionally, like I do wonder a bit about so. Not to like say that to push, this isn't a pushback, but more of like a, a little bit of a letting a tiny bit of the air out. I think 
probably a good amount of mainstream evangelicals don't give any thought to whether or not the nation of Israel has any role in apocalyptic affairs. Um, that said, in a very like large and vocal subset of evangelicals, and especially most conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists, do think this way. And it's certainly the, the kind that we came from, the kind of circles, evangelicals that we came from, absolutely think this way. Um, sorry. But who, so, no, that's okay. Who, who are the, the evangelicals that you think that don't pay attention to this? Because I also came out of Calvary Chapel before the, like, like Chuck Smith is huge. And, like, the Billy Graham, I mean, that's not Calvary Chapel, but, like, the, the Harvest Festival and Greg Laurie, like, they, they would be less, that, that, that's not, like, fucking fire and brimstone Christianity. That's, like, hippie surfer boy Christianity. And they talked about this stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have no doubt that the, the people who are sort of in the know are going to think this way. But I think most, like, people sitting in the pews and stuff, not, maybe not most, but a good amount don't give a second thought to this. And if you press them on it, they'd probably say something that is semi-coherent about, like, a plot synopsis of Left Behind. But they're not going to have, like, a strong view about the religious importance of the state of Israel. I think probably for a good amount of professed uh, or nominal Christians. But that, again, because I just want to, I don't want to paint in like the largest possible brush there. Um, Cause you also have like, you know, what 60 something percent of people in America are nominal Christians. I don't actually remember the number off the top of my head. Um, but I mean, lots of people in America don't support <laughs> the state of Israel or, you know, uh, yeah. Zionist politics. But that's also Catholics and Anglicans. And I'm talking about American evangelicals. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So um, anyway, the, the point still stands um, that this is a, a fairly dominant yeah. view in, in evangelical circles. And like, and we came out of the part of it that's like the most voracious about this stuff. Right. And it's, I think important to note that it's not just that, the sort of the professed love for uh, Jews is is false or is in some sense mealy mouth or whatever. It's actually quite the opposite. It's actually there's a strong kind of vehemence for Jews in in the fundamentalist circles that we came up in because not only do they not accept um, Jesus in the way that you know like an atheist or whomever also wouldn't, they sort of are the most primed to accept him and don't. Like the way it's viewed in the fundamentalist circles that we came from was like they had all the evidence more than anybody else, hmm. right? They had all the, the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible and still didn't see it. So they're like the most yeah, so it's even damned, worse. right? Like, yeah. they're like they have the most responsibility for accepting the Messiah and rejected it. It's like the person who, you know, it's not like they had anything stacked against them. Like they should have known more than anybody and they didn't that Jesus was the Messiah. So there's actually, I think, a kind of really strong resentment, actually, um, underneath all of the sort of political posturing and, and mealy-mouthedness on the, on the surface. Mm. Yeah. If we go back to that point about the average person in the pew that doesn't think about it much, this is why I want people to be pressed. Because mm -hmm. they need to fucking out themselves or they need to be outed so that you know the kind of inconsistency and the, the, the psychotic nature of the system that you are that you are submitting yourself to daily, weekly, and that your money's going to, and that you're supporting emotionally and spiritually and all this stuff. Like, people need to know how fucking crazy that is, you know? Because it's disgusting. It's really fucking disgusting. 
Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, I'm curious what's going to happen during election season next year when I'm assuming it's Biden and Trump again. I guess things could go sideways for either of them. But assuming that's what it is, they're not going to have different answers on this issue. And I don't know how they're going to distinguish themselves from one another on this point, because they're going to have to, given that it's extremely polarizing in the U.S. right now. Mm. Um, and I mean, I, I, I guess Democrats especially are just expecting people to forget about it by next year. But I mean, uh, maybe I'm overly naive about this, but I don't think that's going to happen, especially for yeah. voters. Because the Democratic Party isn't going to be able to have any sort of moral superiority about how they were actually trying to benefit humanity or work on a two-state solution or anything like that because clearly they're just one-sided. And then Trump, you know, famously was, you know, the the most friendly president to Israel ever. Uh, so it's like it is going to be interesting because they're, they're not going to be able to differentiate themselves on this, at least not in like the broad strokes. So they'll, they'll probably just quibble over you know, who did what, and it'll just be Trump being like, yeah, but no wars were started while I was president sort of thing. So even though even though I was so pro-Israel, you know, uh, I had a deal that was really good, you know, Kushner and I had a deal that was really good that the Palestinians were on board or some shit like that. Oh, yeah, it's probably going to be, Whether it's gonna or not be it's like... Whether true is besides the point. That's what yeah, he's going to say. It's going to be like, it, there, there was an effective uh, stalemate while I was president and Hamas only attacked under Biden's watch. That's going to be what it is, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So because 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 we care about babies and shit like that. And that's and that's how and it's going to work. It's going to fucking work. You know? Yeah, I mean, Biden's poll numbers are tanking um with this issue. So I don't tanking. I don't know what they do about it. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that's that's my shitty minute. I just don't understand the craziness. I really don't understand the craziness. It makes me want to pull my my shaved hair out of my head. Yeah, apocalyptic stuff, man. Keep it in the movies. <laughs> Fucking hell. Oh, Jesus. All right, let's get into the main segment and uh, start talking about this essay, dude. Did you want to do like a, a little exposition of the essay or do you want to give just a brief synopsis of it? I know you kind of already talked about who Waltzer is, but but uh, how do you want to get into this essay? Yeah, I man, I think we can just talk, uh, I can just talk really briefly about what the basic argument is, because we can probably get into some of the points um, during the discussion of it, okay. and then take it wherever it goes, because we don't have to use it as like a, a baseline for the whole discussion or anything. We never do that anyway, right? Um, so just to give some background, Michael Walter, yeah. again, is like the foremost um, just war theorist in analytic philosophy circles over the last uh, half century or so. Um, he is probably, I think it's his most famous book, is called Just and Unjust Wars. Um, and it's there's a there's a joke. Uh, this is where he like makes the distinctions between like uh just ad bellum and, and Justin Bellow, like the the different kinds of justice in war versus justice going to war. These kinds of distinctions that are really popular and and talk about just war theory. Um and it's there's like a quip based upon the title of that book, Just and Unjust Wars. That according to Michael Walter, there are only unjust wars in Israel's wars. So, like Walter's standards for a very for a just war are extremely high, <laughs> and yet somehow Israel always mm. seems to clear them in his mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that that gives you a bit of a sense of like where probably this is going to go. And to be fair, um, Walter is not going to like this. This article is not in defense of Israel, um, uh, Israel's actions either. 
in the form of the the blockade over over the last you know two decades, um, or even its actions in the second half of the twentieth century, or its actions um, following the Hamas attack on on October seventh. Um, it's more of an essay directed directly or directed at um, evaluating um, not partially Hamas's actions, but also the sort of rhetoric from leftists in America um, talking about um, the Hamas attack. That seems to be more of what it's directed at, as is usual for like the Atlantic or the New York Times or whatever. Everything is actually about what young people in America think and how they're so stupid and idiotic, right? <laughs> That's ultimately what's the, what the most important times, thing in the world is to tell young people that they're dumb. <laughs> that's right. The crazy college campuses, you know, those <laughs> psychos out there that are 18, those dumb 18 year olds, bro, you're 70 and you've been studying this shit for 50 years. Like start, you know, punching at, at your own weight, you know? <laughs> um, but the amount of times in the article that he says protesters who consider themselves leftists or these so-called leftists so it's it's clear that he's also trying to do a little bit of gatekeeping and uh, kind of demonstrate who the real leftists are because the argument is is that these so-called leftists are actually defending authoritarianism which is not really leftism because they're just justifying violence un, un, unjustifiable violence and so it's you know uh, the, the defending this this group Hamas that he says has no there's there's no justification for any of their actions whatsoever because they're an illegitimate political and illegitimate economic and illegitimate military organization and so if you defend them um, you're defending authoritarianism and then what's worse I think the article is also really taking some big swings at the big swings kind of recent <laughs> interest big swings at the recent interest in post-colonial, anti-colonial, decolonial theory and movements, particularly of the Fanonian variety where violence is, if not justified, given uh, a rationality or explained or somehow um, analyzed in in positive terms. It's defended, let's say. And I, and I think actually... I, I would want to I would want to work through uh, even Fanon, who is different from Sartre, who who writes the preface to Wretched of the Earth, uh, and and a lot of uh, you know he kind of mentions them in the article, but a lot of discussion has been that I've seen at least online has been directed at both Fanon and and Sartre's um, preface to Wretched of the Earth um, with regards to like defending uh, violence from the oppressed, you know? So I think I think those are kind of the, the, the targets that he's really directing, which is interesting as well, too, that that this is in, in a lot of ways a very sort of like, it ends up being a pro-colonial argument because of his, his stance against the decolonial literature or the decolonial impulse. Yeah, I mean, I think he would say it's not pro-colonial, obviously, but it definitely is anti-decolonial like, or whatever, right? Um, his whole the whole like whole so-called leftist thing is a uh, trying to sort of put a line in the sand between two different kinds of leftist slash liberalism, right? Between he he kind of names it as like social democracy, which he sees as the ultimate success story of um, like right. the post enlightenment project, right? And which is why of, I would say it's pro-colonial. <laughs> yeah, and that sort of um, he, but he seems to think I don't want to put too many words in his mouth here, but seems to think is like a purely 
maybe not purely, but largely irrational, emotive, revolutionary, um, like libidinal force uh, that he thinks uh, has no rational justification um, and ultimately is unsuccessful even in um, whatever uh, sort of goals it has in mind. Um, so he's, he's kind of arguing, even though his main argument is that it's that it's immoral, right? This sort of uh, revolutionary struggle. Um, he also thinks it's going to be practically unsuccessful as well. So it's kind of a dual uh, negative evaluation there. Yeah. Uh, but, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's let's kind of so here's the thesis basically, as I was able to to um, determine it. He's basically arguing that he thinks American leftists, largely American leftists, wrongly think. And here's his quote that oppressed people, Palestinians in this case, but oppressed people more generally, can do no wrong. Any act of resistance is justified, however cruel, however barbaric, however much these protesters would rage against it if we're committed by someone else. So even though this article is, is directly about um, Hamas, right, and the, and the sort of evaluation of the Hamas attacks on 10-7, um, it's actually about sort of the view of American leftists about oppressed people more generally. So this can apply in all sorts of cases, right? I mean, basically, any time you have someone who's a socially marginalized individual or belongs to a socially marginalized group, it seems like this kind of um, criticism would apply to anybody who thinks that because that person uh, has a certain um, – is part of a certain identity category or a social group or whatever it is, that's, that sort of mitigates, if not completely eliminates – any sense that they have moral obligations in the way that they resist um, that oppression. That seem right to you as far as what he's arguing? Yeah, and I just want to add some layers to this because I think what he does, and this is actually one of the key problems with the article, is I think he confuses that affective, libidinal aspect that you were discussing earlier with the rational aspect because he talks so much about this that he's saying that these individuals, because they frame the issue in this way, um, that therefore oppressed people have a right to resist. The Palestinians have a right to struggle against the Israeli occupation. And now here's the issue. Not that people aren't saying that. People are saying that. But I think that this does a real disservice to the decolonial literature and the decolonial impulse because it doesn't start as... A justification based on rights it starts somewhere else and I think it comes from somewhere else and if you actually read Fanon and Sartre's writings particularly on this the ones that he cites in the essay himself they don't speak of it in terms of rights or justice at all and so I think he he's really he's he's running roughshod over these kind of more important technical issues because he's trying to um, use the language of international rights to then discredit uh, what might be something more um, unconscious, something that, that resists enclosure by a sort of westernized, rationalized, and I might even say kind of colonial logic itself. And this isn't just me saying this. Fanon literally says this. He says, for the, uh, for, the, for the colonized, there is no justice under the colonized system. They're not interested in justice. It's like an, uh, an affective rage, an unconscious rage is how he and Sartre refer to it. So 
I, I think there's a, a real misunderstanding, and I think that that needs to be clarified because it leads to different conclusions and, and understandings of things. So I think that's just another thing I would add. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing I kind of wanted to talk with you about because I, I don't know Fanon um, very well, and I only really know Sarge through you. Um, so, I mean, one thing that, that concerned me about about the beginning parts of this essay when he, when he sort of sets up this um, sort of antagonistic relationship with the decolonial theory and, and um, sort of relegates it to the realm of um, in what, in one, like in one sense, he's relegating it to the realm of like the irrational by saying it's like this revolutionary fervor. Right. But then also he tries to couch it in terms of what he thinks um, leftists are saying now, which is that this is actually like uh, oftentimes sort of transformed into the language of rights so that you can talk about Exactly. Moral obligations here, um, in the sense that individuals who are oppressed have none, <laughs> or something like that, or there's nothing that they can do mm. that's wrong because of their status as oppressed persons or whatever it is, right? And like, mm. I kind of, I kind of worry a little bit that if if the response to that is well, no, I mean the the oppressed don't think in the terms of of rights and obligations and these sort of high minded. Um, categories that come from um, analytic philosophy, then, and it actually is just like pure libidinal rage or whatever, and not interested in justice. Like that seems to actually be a point in Walter's favor, I would think. Um, and also, just seems to me like a binary that's not necessary. I mean, it seems to me like when you're when you have a kind of rage and anger, it's due to injustice like those things go hand in hand do they not like what yeah. what are they what's someone who's oppressed angry about if not injustice yeah, well here's the here's the interesting thing so fenon speaks about injustice but his point at least in wretched of the earth isn't to say well their concern is for um, inclusion into the system of juridico-political rights that have been established by the international community. It's not, well, that's not his concern. That's not justice, though. What he's talking about... <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and and he's not interested in talking about justice. He's not interested in talking about that there. He does talk about, like, the retributive impulse. So there is something that that does kind of hint at these discussions about, you know, different forms of justice. There is a desire for retribution, but it's much more at the affective and libidinal, uh, at, at libidinal level, uh, at, at least where it comes from. And it's this idea that it's like, if you have a system of primary violence, so violence is first, the, the colonial act is an act of violence over a group of people, oppression and exploitation right? If you have that, then the system is violence all the way down that's on top of them. The only thing that you can do within that world is also engage in violence. And it isn't something where he's saying this is good. As a matter of fact, Sartre even writes about this later in like the mid-60s, later 60s, where he says that Fanon actually did not like violence. He hated that violence was necessary, but it was necessary. It had to be done. It was a situation where it wasn't like uh, there is a moral justification for the activity if we're thinking of justification in these kind of higher ethical terms like, you know, uh, aiming towards harmony or the good or something along those lines. You know, there is no justus, uh, if you will. But it was something that was necessary and maybe even something that you can defend by understanding where it comes from. But you can still say, but yeah, it, it's, it is shameful. It is bad. 
It is still bad that violence has to be the answer, but it is the answer. And I think it's that tension that I think he's okay with, with holding on to. Yeah, man, I mean, at a certain level, I don't think anyone would deny that. I mean, um, unless you're the most extreme possible pacifist, everyone thinks violence is sometimes justified uh, and necessary, even while being um, bad in the general course of things, right? Um, how you apply that that measure in different contexts, I guess, is where things are going to cash out differently, right? But I, I do wonder also, like, I don't, I don't really understand this this notion that, oh, well, we're not talking in terms of um, political justice. We're talking about, you know, the sort of unconscious, libidinal, effective levels where things start. But I just don't buy that binary. Like, the libidinal, the, the effective is rational. I mean, characteristically, when you're angry and you're enraged, when you're um, uh, whatever it is, despondent, it's about something. It's about a state of affairs that you or someone else is in. And it seems to me like that that always, I mean, I mean just like coming from the the Hebrew Bible itself, right? When the when the prophets rage against oppressors, they do it due to injustice and they call for the divine to come down and to enact justice for them, right? Uh, sometimes that's in the form of retributive justice, which isn't usually like actually justice, I think. Um, but that all kind of stems from an ultimate desire for uh, things to be right. And I don't think that doesn't mean that it's, you know, always going to be like morally pure or whatever. But I think there's going to be a core there that's aiming towards the good. Um, it's, I guess it's possible someone could be so mm. far lost and so far like psychologically uh, destroyed that they no longer have any sense of the good left. But that seems very, very rare to me. So I guess I just I, I'm uncomfortable. It seems like Walter is trying to introduce the binary between the effective and the rational. And that's what's worrying me about what he's writing here, because it seems like he kind of wants to dismiss um, what uh, the sort of revolutionary impulse in Palestine as being sort of from this purely libidinal, irrational, and therefore unjustified and unjustifiable um, set of tactics. And that doesn't mean like, I think it's therefore like those actions are justified. Of course not. But I'm just I'm I'm usually uncomfortable with this split between the effective and the rational in general. I think they're much closer and meshed um, than they're usually sort of cast mm. as being. And that really to me like gets gets to the notion that like the important thing, I think what most people are doing, and some, sometimes they don't do it very carefully because you know people aren't philosophers, right? But when most leftists sort of um, sort of recoil when someone says, like, well, do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas, right? which is the weirdest thing that people do on the internet. Um, like asking you to condemn random things to like prove that you're morally pure or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. The reason leftists recoil at that, I think usually isn't because they think Hamas is doing a really good job or is in some sense morally justified in all of its actions. Maybe some people do. There are some tankies out there, right? Um, but most people mm -hmm. I think are just being like, well, that doesn't matter, <laughs> right? What matters is like understanding why they did what they did, meaning asking for a rational explanation for why they did what they did. And there are rational explanations for why they did what they did. It doesn't mean that they're justified explanations, right? In the whole course of things. But I mean, one thing that uh, Walter never mentions in this essay, which I think is really important to mention, it doesn't get mentioned enough in discourse on this subject, is that Hamas exists in Gaza and doesn't exist in the West Bank. Which of those two still has ongoing settlements where Palestinians are being, um, where the, the Israeli army is uh, kicking it, Palestinians out of their homes and burning their homes down and sometimes shooting them? That's not happening in Gaza. Well, it wasn't happening in Gaza before all of this, right? Um, 
one victory yeah. that Hamas has achieved that gained them some legitimacy in Gaza was they stopped the settlements and the Israeli army pulled out of the occupation back in 06 or whenever it was, right? And that hasn't happened in the West 05, Bank. Yeah. So um, if you want to point to like all the ways in which Hamas doesn't have any political legitimacy, that's all fine, right? But also point to the way in which why people in Gaza might think that they do have some political legitimacy, and that is they stopped the settlements in Gaza, right? Um, again, not saying mm. that that makes like 10-7 justified or anything like that, right? Just pointing out like, this isn't pure libidinal rage being enacted against oppressors. This is actual, this is politics, right? This is uh, a certain political group gaining some degree of legitimacy from the people that it represents due to the actions that it takes. And that doesn't even talk about the fact that Hamas has been built up by Netanyahu in the beginning, which is the whole other issue that's never mentioned here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so... So I don't know if this, if you find this val- this argument interesting, or, or even if you if you think that it holds much weight. But so one of the things that both Fanon and Sartre write about in this literature that Walzer is is kind of referring to, "Wretched of the Earth" is the primary text, mm-hmm. right? In the preface that that Sartre writes, um, one of the things they talk about is that uh, the the colonized is not human. Because the concept of the human is not something that is like objective out there that you just find. It's something that's created and constructed. And particularly, let's say, the Enlightenment conception of the human was was erected and established through the activities of colonization. Which means that the colonized have been excluded from the fullness of this construction. The human, right? But in their activities, in their violence, it's kind of, I mean, this is very Sartrean, right? Which we could talk about where Bedieu gets his conception of the event, which I think also a lot of people, there's a, a, a Sartrean scholar named Robert Bernasconi who believes that the reason that Sartre doesn't finish his critique of dialectical reason project is because Fanon writes Wretched of the Earth, which is really the culmination of what Sartre was trying to get at um, in critique. Now, whether or not that's true, who fucking knows? But there's something interesting in that because this idea of the event as like rupturing and tearing the the social systems, political systems, the ethical systems, and just leaving you in this suspended space of we could call it void, um, of nothingness, of openness, of possibility, of freedom, um, where you never know what direction you're going to go, you don't know what's going to be reconstituted because it's in a state of pure, endless unconstitution, right, or or deterritorialization maybe, um, but that in that moment there's kind of like this suspension of of rationality because the action itself is that pure moment of freedom you know Sartre basically says that um, we have made them inhuman we being the colonizers we have made them inhuman and in their violence through their violence it's their activity of seeking to become human right and that that there is a possibility for the creation of new humanisms. Now, it would be a different type of human. It won't be the colonial subject that is constituted on the other side of this, to use a spatial metaphor. But that that's what's happening in the context of colonization. So some people critique Fanon and Sartre for this, for then saying, okay, so then you don't sufficiently critique what happens afterwards, right? Like if you if you create a society that is uh, formed by violence, through violence, in the construction of its humanism, what happens when that settles? Do you then basically constitute 
and have a constituted power that is defined by violence moving forward, and is that a good society? You know, like if it's something that's seared into the consciousness of the people, is that a good way to constitute a new society out of, you know, the oppressed society, right? Or, um, you know, what happens What happens tomorrow, I guess, is, is the, the next kind of question. And maybe there isn't sufficient theorizing about that, at least in these literatures, because that's not the primary point. The point is, is like, what happens in that state of radical compression where there is no even possibility for thinking about tomorrow or for the other side because the activity of colonization never ceases. So it's like it's an endless, constant, permanent need for revolution, which Sartre does later then talk about. He, he finds something valuable in the idea of the idea of perpetual revolution. He just doesn't theorize about it much. But so so I don't know what you think about that. I have a feeling you might kind of find sympathies with it, but also find it a little bit, you, you might kind of like pull back a little bit from it. And I don't know if that helps clarify things or, or makes you think in certain ways, but I think that's a way to think about this is that that 70 years, let's say, even though, you know, you could go back further, but let's go back to like 48, I guess. We'll say Palestinians have been under this state of constant colonial expression. Therefore, the state of affairs that they're responding to is is their struggle for humanity. So it's it's that constant state of being in the event, being in the indecidable moment, perpetually. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have some questions of clarification that this is really interesting to think about how to sort of go back and forth between different sets of terms and referring to some of these things. So like, it seems totally right that if individuals or, or a social group are under the yoke of, a, of extreme oppression, right, uh, constantly and consistently over you know many decades over the, it, it, it's, it constitutes the the major portion of their lives right um, which is certainly true in the case of like Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza right um, and you can also say you know true for you know Black Americans in the South pre civil rights era apartheid South Africa lots of other examples you could use to sort of um, speak to this right uh, colonial subjects in Algeria is the one that uh, that Walter talks about in the essay a lot right. Um, yeah. So it seems which is which is important because Fanon Fanon is writing he he's a member of uh the FLN, right? right and exactly, he's he's yeah. literally and, and Sartre is a huge supporter of that at the time. So it's also important that that Walter's referring to that because that's precisely the context in which Fanon and Sartre are writing. He, he's directly targeting that, right? Yeah. That's right. Uh, as the yeah. kind of as like the the exemplar of the thing you don't want to do. <laughs> um Right, right, right. So it seems right that there's a sense in which people under that yoke of oppression are are sort of, in a sense, um, inhuman or non-human or subhuman or in terms of um, sort of the the order of justice that exists in that society, they are not they're so much not equal as to almost be like not even a political subject to a certain degree, right? Um, and that's what's meant by inhuman or, or whatever, then that seems right. Um, I guess I'm kind of losing the plot after that because what's, if the struggle then is to become human, um, it's a sort of gaining that's supposed to have like a yearning for some other kind of existence, not just status, but like existence as a person or something like that. Right. I, I don't know how to distinguish that from like yearning for justice, which again is not, um, to be included into the political order that currently exists 
because that's not possible. It's literally impossible. The current order that exists exists because, in part, because it excludes those certain people, right? So it can't be well, mere well, inclusion. Quick, it, addendum to that, that's precisely what Walzer's solution is, though, is that the only solution is to be included in the system of justice that is the very thing that's being contested in the first place, wholesale, the whole sector, the whole order, the whole colonial order. So that's the point, is that it's almost like you don't even know what the other order is. You just know that it's not that. Oh, sure. I mean, again, there's a, a very important difference between the existence of justice and inclusion into a currently existing political order. Because that political order may itself be unjust, which, of course, in this case, it is. <laughs> right? So, or, but, or that political order is the order that defines what justice means in the first instance. And it's that entire conception of justice as so defined by that order that is under dispute. I mean, maybe, but that assumes we're talking about the same thing when we're talking about justice. And that's, I think, precisely what's being disagreed about, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So there's an important different, there's an important like distinction to make here between like what you might call um, the concept of justice and the conception of justice. So like there are differing and battling conceptions of justice out there, but there's one concept of justice, whatever that is, I don't know, but it's whatever justice actually is in reality. And many different <laughs> conceptions that people have of it, right? And yeah. so if a, per, if a person's oppressed, then yeah, part of their oppression is going to be claiming that the dominant conception of justice isn't actually justice, right? Right. And I think you have to have this like prior, higher concept of justice, not in like the full platonic sense, but just the kind of thing that's, you know, at least a regulative ideal, if not actually in practice, the kind of thing by which you judge currently existing accounts of justice or conceptions of justice as being illegitimate or in mm -hmm. some sense, like not reaching the ideal, right? Yeah. Otherwise, if, if that wasn't possible, we couldn't even talk about these things <laughs> at all, right? Because we'd just be mm -hmm. having different conceptions all the way down and then it would all just be like, you know, babbling at the um, grocery store or whatever. Um, so, I don't know. It, it just seems like, I mean, I'm totally on board with the idea that, um there's a there's a sense of contestation that's happening when oppressed people rise up, right, or engage in revolutionary action or whatever, right? There has to be a kind of contestation. Um, if part of the issue is just well, we can't say exactly what that justice will look like until after the revolution succeeded. If that's maybe the idea, and so we don't want to have this sort of pre-established sense of what it will look like because the revolution hasn't happened yet or whatever. And if we did have some pre-established conception of it that we had to sort of uh, act in accordance with, and that's just going to be the colonial logic that pre-existed as anyway, is that sort of the worry? Uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Yes and no. I think for Fanon and Sartre, yeah, that's kind of more where they're at. And then critic critics of, of Fanon and, and Sartre would say that, right? But I don't think that that's also necessarily the case for exactly what's happening in Palestine because I think there is a very clear sense of like a positive conception of liberty, you know, that 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 is there that is being violated, you know, like there is a sense in which it isn't that it isn't just purely like, oh, we have no idea about the kind of life we would like to live. There is a sense in which people are like, oh no, you know, we'd like self-determination and, you know, sovereignty over our fucking borders and 
you know. Yeah. Uh, There's some pretty basic things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so there is a sense in which the order, the the international imperial order, let's say, um, is impinging upon some of these these desires for a future, right? But so this is why I'm okay with making that split between the rational and the affective, because I think I think the the affective outburst of violence isn't something that even needs to be discussed about in terms of justification. It's not about justifying violence as an expression of the oppressed or the expression of the colonized. Like, I don't see that as even being an issue about justification. I think there's a difference between justifying colonial outbursts of violence and... um, and talking about whether or not they're necessary or they happen or even legitimate, which I think is a different discussion. Well, here's my worry about that. There's a step between the effective part and the justification part, right? Because the effective part is a sort of motivating factor. It's one of the motivating factors, I think at least. Um, and the justification part is the after effect. It's like, what do you? how do you evaluate it after it's been done, right? Right. The middle point between that is sort of, well, I think it's the rational part of it, but it's the reason why someone does a thing, right? And so my worry is if there's no if there's no sense in which rational evaluation can happen, then I don't even know how the people who would engage in the action itself understand their own action. And that seems wrong to me because people who engage in um, violent revolutionary action always seem to have very detailed reasons for why they do what they do. Um, and so I want to actually give them agency in that regard and say, I want to understand why they think this is a good idea, even before talking about whether it's like right or wrong or some, you know, uh, more complex evaluation, right. like justification or non-justification of it, some sort of like moral evaluation of it. Before you ever get to that, I want to get to like rational understanding. What are their reasons for doing what they're doing? Why do they... Why would they make sense to someone in that context, whether or not they're right or wrong, right? Mm. And so, like, I, I kind of worry that saying that it's like a, it's it's effective and not rational, or it's like purely motivated by this uh, effective libidinal um, rage, sort of denies agency from the individuals who are doing it. I mean, is that is that wrong? No. If it, if it were that, I, I guess then. But isn't I mean, the book, Wretched of the Earth, that's precisely what it is. It is the rational explanation for the affective and libidinal, right? And that's 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 literally what it is. It's, it's an explanation of the unconscious. People need to also remember that Fanon was a psychoanalyst, so he's really interested in the unconscious. Um, and, you know, he popularizes the, the political conception of the inferiority complex, not just the psychological, but how it plays out in kind of sociopolitical orders, right? So he's, he's, he's a psychoanalytic theorist. And so he's basically looking at something and he's saying what the West doesn't understand, what the colonial West doesn't understand is the impact that this has on people. And so here, let me try to explain it from a psychoanalytic perspective, which is giving rational defense, apologia, but I don't think that it's justification. So if we're going to take that three steps that you're talking about, the affective, the rational, and the justificatory, it's that third one that I don't think, I don't think Walzer, that's where Walzer only, he he only understands like the second and the third. 
the rational and justificatory, and I think he, he conflates them, and I think he misunderstands the decolonial struggle is the affective and the rational, and I don't think that, that even though people do talk about that third aspect of, of justifying, I don't think that's the primary concern, and I think that I think that, that that's where the, the, the miscommunication comes. I mean, I mean, there's a lot I want to say to that. One is I think Walter actually denies the rational <laughs> in this essay. Um, oh, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think the whole... Yeah, yeah he only speaks of... of they, yeah, that's why I was saying he conflates them, right? The the rational and the... the so, yeah, the, again, yeah. My worry about the sort of decolonial logic denying the rational was that I think that actually fits with what Walter is doing better than... In a way that I think is, is, would be would be bad. Uh, it seems to me like the whole analogy that Walter uses in the essay about um, Lenin's revolutionary consciousness versus trade union consciousness is actually just saying, no, these actions aren't really rational. <laughs> um, they don't have any sort of uh, rational basis. They, they're they not done reflectively. Um, they're sort of like just wanting revolution for revolution's sake or something like that. He even, he even uses religious metaphors. Like it's messianic, he says, right? It's trying to get at this like yeah. irrational impulse idea i think that that's the whole problem i think yeah because they're just barbarians and they're subhumans and they don't think the way that we think which is why again he ultimately ends up vindicating a sort of colonial logic because social democracy is the true form of the left the trade unionists and their compromise with the neoliberal system that's what true that's true progress which is just very much he's erecting a master signifier of what it means to kind of exist and unless it fits under that then it's irrational barbarian subhuman whatever and so he, he's the one that forces that bifurcation. But in the decolonial literature, they ju- they're, not, they're not forcing that bifurcation because they don't, they don't neglect the rational. They're, they're just not rushing to that kind of third step, which is the notion of like rights and justice based on, on international human West or international uh, uh, human rights law, which is kind of the presumption of, of Walter's whole paradigm. Yeah. And, you know, so my worry then is I, I totally get the idea not to jump immediately to um, the realm of justification, because, I mean, in my mind, justification is about reasons. <laughs> um, mm. That's what justification is about. If you're figuring out what's the domain of things that are justified or unjustified, they are reasons, ultimately, like in the moral sphere, right? Um, you can talk about like political structures and institutions at the at the level of politics, right? But at the moral sphere, it goes down to reasons. That's what's justified or not. Actions on their own are not justified or unjustified. Like, you know, are feelings justified or unjustified? They can be apt or appropriate, but not justified or unjustified, and absent of reasons, right? Okay. Uh, again, you have to add the reasons into them for the justify justification sort of um, domain to like become apparent. So, like the uncon the unconscious rage thing, you wouldn't you could say it's apt, but you wouldn't say it's justified. Uh, by itself, no. I mean, I don't think itself, feelings yeah, yeah. in general by themselves can be justified or not. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if reasons are the kinds of things that are justified or unjustified, then you have to get them in the picture to even start talking about justification, right? And it seems to me like what Walter's doing here by introducing this analogy with revolutionary versus trade union consciousness is that he's kind of just saying, well, this whole, you know, sometimes these like political actions are purely like libidinal, affective, messianic, religious, whatever metaphor for irrational you want to say Hmm. and so they're not even like able to be justified right and the reason why ultimately you can say they're unjustified is because this is a domain where you have to have justified reasons so if you don't have justified reasons if you don't have any reasons at all 
then they're just categorically unjustified. In fact, we don't even have to inspect them because they're just categorically unjustified because they're irrational, right? So it's a way of, I think, just kind of ignoring, um, actually investigating why political actors would do what they do in the first place, right? Which is, I think, ultimately, like, the best way to um, dismiss uh, anybody's reasons for action by just saying that there really aren't any in the first place. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think also there's another... It's making me think that that the only way he thinks of of justification. I, I have a real problem with this analogy that he's using, this, this, this appeal to Lenin and the difference between the revolutionary consciousness. It's and the pretty weird, right? Like, <laughs> it's really bad too. Like it doesn't even hold because you can't take a political economic critique that is about exploitation and just map that directly onto political oppression. There, it's, a, it's literally a category error. <laughs> like if, <laughs> If you're talking about Gazans not receiving a just return on their time labor investment, that's a different argument. And that's not what – that's the only way that the trade union compromises and strategy, the strategery, um, can even be understood. It's it's they were making compromises because they're like, well, we're getting this, but we're not getting that. And he and I and I guess that's where he's coming from. It's like, okay, so you've got to use incremental strategy rather than just wanting the whole scale overturn of everything. Like maybe, but it's a bad analogy because it just doesn't fit within the context of what Lenin's critique of capitalism was, and then what the sort of trade union, trade union strategy and compromises are ultimately rooted in. So it's a really fucking bad analogy. And I'm more disappointed in somebody who is so highly praised and who's literally been thinking about this stuff for longer than I've been alive that he would use such a poor, poor analogy to try to get his point across. Like, it it makes me mad that he has a job and I don't. Um, <laughs> and I mean, in, in addition... Just to riff on what you're saying there, there, you know, in the context of labor struggles, um, the laborers have a certain kind and degree of leverage over the capitalists, right? Yeah, like they have the ability to stop working. That's right. <laughs> um, the strike, and so and what they're saying is, we won't strike anymore because we know that we're the source of value. Like that's what it, it, we're the source of value. So make sure we get like a due return on the investment that we're putting into surplus capital or I mean surplus value. So like you got to give us that. And then if you give us that, then we won't break the machines and we'll actually show up for work. Like that's a yeah. very different scenario. Yeah. Trade unions have a certain kind of leverage and power in those kinds of contexts because they're already in a certain kind of social relation with capitalists, right? That's, what's right, that's right. But what's important about an apartheid political system is that especially when they're like cordoned off into a corner of the ter- of a territory and then blockaded or occupied is they don't have any of that leverage. <laughs> They're not contributing material materially to the economic order in the same way. It's not the same. Zionists literally want them to go away, to like go to Egypt. <laughs> like, can you imagine, like, can you imagine a capitalist being like, yeah, I actually want my workers to strike. In fact, they can just leave forever. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like that- <laughs> And then the trade unions, and then the trade unionists are like, "Oh man, well actually, you know, that it's a it's a good deal. We'll stay, we'll stay, and and like what the fuck? It, it literally makes no sense. <laughs> it makes me angry. It makes me really fucking angry.
Yeah, it's such a tortured analogy. Yeah, it, it, it really, what it comes down to, the only analogy that's there is um, permissiveness of violence, <laughs> right? Which again, it's, it's begging the question because that's the whole point. Uh, that's the conclusion is that one was violent and didn't work. One was nonviolent largely and did work. But the conclusion is supposed to be, so therefore use nonviolence. But it's like, well, wait a minute. But the whole point was like, given the different kinds of le- different kinds of leverage that unionists have, that's why they can engage in different tactics. Like, yeah, it's the, the whole thing is just is really fucked. Well, also, he makes this distinction like the revolutionary consciousness that he attributes to Lenin was based on, as he says, it was directed toward the distant achievement of a communist society. So, again, um, unrealistic idealistic, utopian. Yeah. Um, D- distance distance there means unrealistic, irrational. <laughs> that's what it means. Yeah. Un- that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, stupid. You're not going to get that. Wake up and smell the coffee. This is the real world, real politic bullshit, right? And then he says, but the second one, the trade union consciousness, aimed right now at small gains like higher wages, better working conditions, the end of the for- uh, factory foreman's tyranny. So again, it's the... Well, give up on your hopes and dreams and just accept the small penances that you can earn now, which here's the thing. So then he, 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 he couches this as though this was like this great fucking victory and it led to the success of social democracy. Well, there's an argument to be made that the compromises of the welfare state and things like that that trade unions actually ended up um, uh, giving up towards – really led toward the construction of neoliberalism. There's a great book by this uh, on this issue about uh, in the Australian context by Elizabeth Humphreys called How Labor Built Neoliberalism. And uh, Martin Konings has written about how uh, like the New Deal see, uh, sowed the seeds for what we now call neoliberalism through the kind of financialization of everyday life by making sure that everybody could be uh, given like access to credit cards and home loans and yada, 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 that that kind of was built on these compromises. So the compromise of social democracy was really the ultimate success of the imperial logic of Western neo-imperialism, financial imperialism. So this... I'm not sure that that's necessarily the success that we should be venerating as well, which which is why I think ultimately the the logic that he's trying to vindicate is a colonial one. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of big age history stuff here to talk about with social democracy and whatnot. And I mean, we don't need to get into that, but I do think that kind of what you're getting at here, this idea that, that the trade union consciousness is sort of the analog to um, social democracy, and that that's sort of the the bright light of liberalism that we should follow, right? And not this ugly sort of revolutionary, irrational kind of consciousness. Um, it, it's it's very much akin to a lot of discourse you hear in the U.S. around like how every protest movement needs to follow the model of the civil rights movement in the '60s. Um, that's right. Not not just for moral reasons, although it is for moral reasons, but also for practical success reasons, like prudential reasons. Right. Mm. And it's always so frustrating to me, regardless of like the whole moral issue, because that's a whole different topic about whether or not when and where violence would be appropriate. It's a whole different um, sort of you know, discussion to have. And I'm generally on the side of, you know, violence is, violence is almost always bad. Right. Um, is that it completely erases the context of the civil rights movement. Right. And that not only did you had like a largely nonviolent civil rights movement, but you also had a violent wing of the civil rights movement. And the that was like a bad cop to the good cop of, you know, MLK at all um, in like the Black Panthers and other radical groups. Right. You also had the Soviet alternative, which is a super important piece of context 
um, to making sure that mm. uh, there was a sort of a large scale social alternative out there um, that could criticize the U.S. for having an apartheid state. Um, and that would put some pressure on um, on civil rights issues. And you also had Vietnam, right? This huge delegitimizing um, government activity or military activity mm. um, that, that, you know, fanned the flames a lot of social unrest in the U.S. You have none of that now, right? None of those things. Currently. There is no like large scale kind of violent uh, or like threatening violence or, you know, having the capacity for violence, um, like some of the black radical time in the 60s, right? To play bad cop to the civil rights movement's good cop. You don't have the Soviet alternative anymore, obviously, right? There's just one neoliberal order and that's it. Um, and you don't have uh, anything like Vietnam, right? So if we're going to talk about the successes of the civil rights movement, or just the successes of nonviolent protests generally, right? It's not so obvious that like just engaging in nonviolent protests automatically gets you what you want. Case in point, Gaza, mm. the Great March of Return happened in 2019, right? The the you know sacrosanct nonviolent protests that everyone was been asking for. Whenever when someone says like, "Where is the MLK of Gaza? Where's the Gandhi of Gaza?" Yada yada yada. yada. Well, they got shot, <laughs> right? They were ignored by Western mm. media and they were shot by Israeli snipers. So. That's what happens when nonviolent protest doesn't have a lot of the other necessary conditions for political success of a protest movement, right? Um, and there just seems to be this mm. like, and, and at the end of the essay, I kind of want to talk about the end of the essay with you because he kind of brings us all back to like Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, and it makes some really strange claims. Dude, this like, whole fucking essay, um, I was, I was so, I was like, where is he pulling this <laughs> from? You know. So let's, yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. So he says. He makes this claim that like, um, and rightly, you know, to give him credit, that like Black Lives Matter, that slogan was meaningful given the context in which it's said, which is that this is a thing that's insufficiently recognized in public consciousness, right? Given how black people were treated by police and the courts and whatnot, right? Um, And so when people say something like all lives matter in response to that, they're missing the point that the context is what's important, Right. And that's, you know, basically right. I mean, that seems obvious. Um, but then he sort of takes that that point and applies it um, to 10-7 and says, at the same time, when a leftist refuses to condemn Hamas, that's not what he says, but he says something like, claims that Hamas's actions are justified or at least doesn't say they're unjustified, whatever, right? Um, they're also missing the point of the context or something like that. <laughs> I don't... I have no. I don't really get how the analogy here is supposed to work. Did you make any sense of it? No, no. I literally had no fucking clue what he was talking about. Um, I'm trying to find the exact quote right now. Yeah, here it is. Here, let's let's just read a little bit of it. So, because he says that the basic obligation of um, of people who are trying to create a legitimate, justifiable resistance movement has to be that first thing that they reject terrorism. That's their obligation. Because that's the whole thing, right? Like that the oppressed have obligations too. Like if you want to claim that you have the right to resist, which I'm not sure is the central claim anyway. That's my main issue. I just don't think he understands the anti-colonial spirit. It's not that necessarily it's about the right to do whatever the fuck they want. It's that they reject the system of rights as a first principle. Not that there is no 
discussion of justification, but that's not the first principle by which they sort of are operating, right? And and I think that's where there's uh, that the, there's like um, they're missing each other. They're talking past one another here. So, um, but then he says, so then because they want to claim that they have the right to resist, um, the the reality is is they if they're gonna talk about rights, then they also need to recognize that they have obligations to be included into the system of rights, is kind of his argument, which means that the first obligation is that they reject terrorism. And then he basically just says, you know, Hamas is just simply a terror organization, and he has like a really bad uh, history lesson that he gives about like, uh, oh, Israel pulled out in 2005, and they weren't doing anything, and you know, there was all this talk about uh, Gaza being the new Hong Kong, and blah, 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 but Hamas didn't let that happen, because they fired rockets in there the very next year, and it's like, well, yeah, but Israel didn't just leave and be like, hey guys, we love you and we support you and the international community rallied around you. They were fucking setting up blockades and imposing taxes on anything coming. Like, it's just bad history as well. So, like, yeah, go ahead. Were you going to say no, something? Yeah, I mean, it was the, the, the fact that he mentioned the blockade once and then when it was crucial to bring it up, which is when Israel quote unquote left, he doesn't mention it. Like, that seems kind of... Obvious. No, no. He makes it seem like, oh yeah, they, they they stopped occupying in 2005, and there was all this hope that Gaza was going to be like Hong Kong, and it's like, no, the the complete no. That's not what happened, bro. Like they didn't just say, hey, we wish you the best, and we're going to start investing in your infrastructure, and, and then helping you set up, uh, you know, uh, imports and export relations uh, with with the rest of the developed world. That's not that's not what fucking happened. Um. So, uh, okay, so he goes through all of that, and then he says, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so, so here's, the, here's the relevant passage, right? Uh, he's talking about the um, uh, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter stuff, and he says, we should give the attack of October 7th its right name. It was a pogrom, a massacre, underst- uh, undertaken for the purpose of murdering Jews. People who refuse the term, saying instead that all killing of civilians is wrong, are right in the general way that all lives matter is right. They're avoiding the crucial moral and political point. Um, so it seems like what he's saying here is that someone... Yeah, real quick. So explain that. Yeah. 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 So it seems like what he's saying is um, we need to call October 7th a massacre. And if you refuse that term, um, saying instead that all killing of civilians is wrong, so basically just not being willing to name this is like... A, sanitizing it. Especially wrong or something, right? You're, you're right in a general way. In the same way, all lives matter is generally right, but misses the context, which is what makes the claim "Black Lives Matter" important, given that it's insufficiently recognized in this particular context of you know police in the courts. So the analogy here then is that is that the the activity of Hamas on October seventh is analogous to so so the. The oppression experienced by Israel is is the analog of the oppression experienced by uh, blacks in America. It can't be that, even though you're right, it is that. It can't be that because that's what he's, he's saying. For, he's taking for granted that that Palestinians are oppressed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. He's got the wrong analog. Like that. <laughs> right. that he's got the analog all wrong. Like the, the right analog is that. Uh, that and this is what Norman Finkelstein has recently been talking a lot about is that um, the activity of Hamas is much more akin to like the slave revolts of uh, of enslaved Africans, you know, during the 18th century and 19th century. The Haitian revolt, like, for instance, when lots of in the Haitian innocent, revolt, innocent like, women like that's the repent. analog. Mm-hmm. And so then, then, then that that's the analog, um, not not what he's doing. 
Right. So the, the point, this is what I was so confused about, was like, he seems exactly wrong about the analogy, right? What's important about the BLM context is that the fact that Black Lives Matter is insufficiently recognized in this specific context of dealing with police and courts and whatever else in public life, right? So if you're applying that to October 7th, um, of course it was a massacre. Like women and children were, were killed and slaughtered. Like I don't think anyone would say that in abstract is like a good thing. Um, without the context, the insufficiently recognized context of that is apartheid. <laughs> right. That's the insufficiently recognized context that's akin to how black people in America are treated by police in the courts, right? So if you don't mention that context, which he conveniently doesn't in that section, he mentions it earlier, right? But not in that mm. section. That's the important point of context that's salient, that needs to be mentioned, again, not to justify the actions necessarily, but to understand them, right? To understand why they would be done in the first place rather than as like, you know, done right. by a subhuman animal or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a weird analogy. It seems like ex- to make exactly the opposite point of the one he was making. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very confused. This is the thing that makes me so upset is that it's like, dude, you, you got to be better than that. Like I, I would hope that our intellectual elite are better than that. You know, it's one of those things, man, where it does feel like the 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 issue of Israel and Palestine just makes people go kind of crazy. Mm. And I don't I don't know what it is um, precisely. There's probably just a combination of a lot of different factors, but it makes people say things you would just never expect them to say. I'm, I'm you know, and not just for people on the right. I think people on the left sometimes too. Um, yeah, it seems to be just that unique kind of issue. Well, if you if you buy into the moral legitimacy of a Western imperialist logic, this is the outworking of that. And so the very last line of his essay, I think, really defends my point or supports my point that I think that's what he's doing. He says, like the terrorists, they may think that they're advancing the cause of liberation. You know, these people who defend uh, this idea of that, you know, that you can resist oppression by any means. Like the terrorists, which is also an interesting thing to just say that just like the terrorists there, they may think they're advancing the cause of liberation, but they have forgotten the obligations to you and me. So that means that he has erected a larger macro structure of rights onto the world as his presuppositional foundation, right? Well, yeah, for sure. But And, and that's... And, and what is that that kind of master signifier that dictates and determines how everything else can be understood? And it is that Western imperial geopolitical vision that he calls social democracy that I would say is kind of like, I don't know, like the, the, the vision of the UN or some shit like that. Like, like politically, what does it actually mean? You know, and I think that's what it is. It's, it's, it's kind of Western Anglo conceptions of life that reign supreme and that those are the obligations that the rest of the world and that everybody are subjected to. I mean, maybe let me, let me cast a slightly different light on it and see what you think. Mm-hmm. Um, so that last line is, I think stands out. They've forgotten their obligations to you and me. I mean, first of all, the idea that Hamas might have obligations to you and me is like laughable, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be charitable <laughs> and say that he's, he actually means like Palestinian people, which seems in the previous couple of paragraphs to be what he's actually saying, right? Is that terrorism as a political ideology um, can't function as like a legitimate governing force 
or even a legitimate social force, really, um, because it's not like doesn't involve the people. He mentions the the Trotsky line of uh, making the people happy without the people or whatever. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of what makes it illegitimate. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have this sort of democratic uh, legitimacy to it. Um, but again, that's like that seems to be that that's what makes it illegitimate. Right. No good society without you and me. Um if terrorists are simply doing it for their own sake or for these like irrational, messianic, triumphant, libidinal reasons or whatever, purely emotive reasons, then that's what makes it illegitimate, right? That seems to be the kind of driving force of the critique here. But again, I think that's just like maybe, but also like Hamas got rid of the settlements. <laughs> maybe that's why they have some legitimacy to Gazans. Again, doesn't mean that they should. Doesn't mean that that's like a good, the best reason or that they don't do other terrible and horrific things. Of course they do. Right. But like, it's just trying to erase any sense of how these forces might have a degree of legitimacy. I mean, the very idea that like being a quote unquote terrorist, as if people self-describe that way, that's, that's like ludicrous. Right. Right. Uh, makes you illegitimate. Well, but again, that's, that's part of my point is that he erects the definition by which everything is determined they're the standard by which everything is determined or in which everything is defined. And then so if you don't fit into that, you're a terrorist. If you don't fit into that, you don't understand justice. If you don't fit into that, you're not living to our obligations. So it's this easy erection. That's a horrible account of justice, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, imagine ta- imagine talking about the U.S. revolutionaries in this way. Well, clearly these are terrorists who are engaging in property destruction. The Crown did talk about a, the, the, the revolutionaries in that way. I, I, I know. <laughs> But imagine Walzer talking yeah. about the U.S. revolutionaries in this way, right? Well, they were just doing it without their obligations to you and me playing any role whatsoever, That's right? right? They're just revolutionary terrorists. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding? The problem there seems to be just not even trying to think on the ground how someone who engages in these actions could think them justifiable or, or understandable or legitimate, right? Again, not about whether or not they are justifiable, legitimate, just how someone doing the actions or someone represented by someone doing the actions even could think of them in this way, right? And just relegating them to the realm of the irrational. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right. I mean, I think you're certainly right that there's a there's a, a there's a, like a top down concrete notion of justice through certain currently existing institutions, whatever they are, right? That's being applied here to say um, these are horrible actions. The very idea that like Hamas is engaged in war crimes, right? is a kind of application of a concrete institution of justice um, on these actions, right? That's certainly happening here, right? Um, But it seems to me like, in addition to that, like the more fundamental problem is just not even trying to understand um, why someone would do the things that they do in these cases. And it kind of seems to me like in every action, even the most like heinous things you can think of, it's really important to try and understand why someone would do them. I mean, think about even at the at the individual, like interpersonal level, right? If someone's a wife beater, right, a spousal abuser, or a racist, or something like that, right? It's pretty important to ask yourself and to think about and sort of you know um, wrestle with why would someone do the things that they do? If you just say it's because they're inherently evil and have these natural, inevitable impulses to commit violence or whatever. I mean, I, in some cases, maybe there's individuals who have like a, you know, uh, a cognitive sort of issue going on that's that's doing that or whatever. But in most cases, it's not. In most cases, it's actually explicable. 
And I feel like you kind of have to understand that even to understand why it's bad. Again, right, to understand why something is unjustified, you have to know the reasons. And it's not even an attempt here to know the reasons or to even sort of wrestle with the reasons. And and in going back to the Fenon Sartre example, that that's why he misunderstands that literature. And that's why he misunderstands, I would say, the sort of bedrock of revolutionary and of the kind of at least the Fanonian variety, Sartrean variety of uh, of anti-colonial rationalization, let's say, because that's precisely what their entire projects were, was about understanding why are we in the condition that we are in? Why are exploited people, why are oppressed people in the conditions they're in? What are the material effects of that? Not just on the economy and their daily lives, but over their psyches, over their subjectivity, right? That's why Sartre and Fanon are so important because they're concerned with subjectivity. Like what type of humans does it craft? Or in Sartre's terms, inhumans does it craft, right? And then what could it mean to then say, well, it's not just sufficient to then be like, oh, well, let us be included into your system because that very system is the one that crafted us, that constructed the colonized as inhuman in the first instance. So let's leave open the question of how we could construct alternative humanisms, right? Like, what, what does that even look like moving forward? And so it is a, an, an effort to understand why are people in the conditions in which they're in, to what effects, what's the response, and then... The really difficult thing is, okay, so then what do you do moving forward? But like that's literally what that in- entire project is. That's what critique of dialectical reason is. That's what Wretched of the Earth is. That's what Sartre's, the rest of his life uh, after the, you know, the 1950s, let's say, was entirely dedicated to. And that's what that research, that, that's what that literature is really all about. And it's the very thing that Walter, I don't think, understands. And it's the very thing that he kind of hand waves away by using really bad analogies through this essay. Okay, I'm I'm really glad you put it that way. I think I'm I'm making the connection now between what you're saying and what I'm saying. I think they're actually perfectly compatible and maybe even like strengthen each other. So it seems like the the sort of top down concrete conception of justice, as consisting in currently uh, existing political institutions, right? So basically, the idea that social democracy is like the best world that that, that can be, right? Um, the what's heinous about applying that to this case and saying anything that doesn't follow that sort of uh, conception of justice is this like irrational um, revolutionary fervor that's not even in the domain of justification, right? It's unjustified just categorically. That's heinous because it's functioning to to remove um, any sort of explanatory account of why individuals, uh, oppressed individuals do what they do, which sometimes involves engaging in a violent action, right? Again, before even thinking about whether it's justified, just understanding why they do what they do, how they think about their own situation, right? That's what's heinous about the currently existing order. It says either you do the thing, either you do trade unionist shit, or you're irrational. It's one or the other. There's no other possible option. There's no other kind of contestation that can happen there. And that's what's heinous about it, right? It sort of functions to remove that whole category of thought, which is possible to think. Right, um, from even the, having the discussion, it's not even available in this essay. Again, it's not. It's not like it's acknowledged and then dismissed. It's not even acknowledged as being a possible thing that can be thought. It's really just trade unionist, unionist incrementalism, or not, nothing. Right. 
And isn't this just a political theology? Like, that's all it is. It's saying anything that fits outside of this dogma is sin. I mean, it, 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 he wouldn't say that for sure, right? Because he's trying to ground this in, in interpersonal morality, right? Obligations to you and me, right? But of course, and and, and, it sh- and ultimately it should be, like that is the kind of the ground. But it just dismisses that entire notion, right? It just says, well, they're not even thinking about that. Their obligations to the Palestinian people, right? Without even thinking about, well, would they say that? <laughs> right? Do Gazans think that? Yeah, it's obligations to you and me based on the terms that we dictate and force down your throat through military might and through economic uh, economic exploitation and, and persuasion. Like, what the fuck? No. You know? And through uh, ideological control because we set the ideas of, of what how you can think, uh, what you can think, to what extent you can think what you can think. There are reasons or there are not way, reasons at all. You're an animal. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's saying either yeah. there are reasons or there are no reasons at all. That's it. There That's can't right. be different kinds of reasons. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's that's like literally what the, the decolonial movement is like no 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 wait hold on a second here you can't control everything in the realm of thought like yeah you got some good ideas <laughs> okay cool but like <laughs> hold on there's like a, an entire fucking alternative history here of things that you're just ignoring another great book on this is um uh black marxism by cedric robinson um who talks a lot about this idea that's like well the kind of the, the, the struggle, the revolutionary black struggle, which is very much a, an anti-colonial struggle, is really about kind of recognizing that there is something that is unique to the black experience, right? There's something that is different. It's a, it's a completely different paradigm of thought. And I think that there's something important in that, that, that this type of thinking, that this type of top-down reasoning does not even allow space for. And, 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 and Sartre would refer to that as like thinking from totality. And this is actually, here's the irony. Here's the irony is that, is that he critiques the Soviet Union. So Sartre's critiquing the Soviet Union and Walter's critiquing the Soviet Union um, and authoritarianism. The irony is that Sartre would say that Walter's actually being the authoritarian here <laughs> by thinking from totality, by having a sort of like claim on a universal, a false universal maybe, but having a claim on sort of like a totality of how it is that we can understand justice, um, how to live, how to think, how to feel, and then how to do, right? And by doing that, you're kind of like drawing a circle around that which is sayable and that which is non-sayable. And this is something that I've written about in my book on Sartre, deriving from the work of Paul Livingston in his book, The Politics of Logic, um, where it is, is is that you can kind of demarcate that which is sayable and that which is non-sayable. And you erect a regulative principle and anything that violates that is something that you, you is irrational or illegitimate, right? And then, of course, the, the flip side to that is why Sartre also critiques the Soviet Union, particularly in the fallout of their invasion of Hungary in 1956, is that they were able to do that because they were able to legitimize anything that they wanted to do because it fit within the context of the rules that they established, the order they established. Now, Walter wouldn't go that far, I don't think, but I don't think they're too dissimilar. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking as, as, you, were, as you were mentioning that about whether or not Walter has an authoritarian logic here. Like, 
maybe it's even worse than that <laughs> in that um I mean not worse but like smaller it's ont- onto theological I mean yeah yeah it's like a yeah yeah I mean smaller in the sense of like and like belittling this uh, this argument a bit by being like if, if the if the function of the of the essay is basically we're going to dismiss revolutionary Palestinian fervor whatever as, as as irrational and not even consider whether or not there are reasons for it right um it's important that who is the target of this essay? It's importantly not Palestinians. <laughs> I mean, he's writing in English in like the Atlantic, so obviously it's not Palestinians, right? But even though it's talking it's about the defenders, it's the a, defenders. Of it's terrorism. American college students. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Again, to go That's back right. to full circles, what we we're talking about at the beginning, how the everything in the um, major newspapers these days is is old white guys talking about how much they don't like college students. Um, <laughs> What's what's really kind of ironic and maybe sad about the whole thing is that not only is it dismissing any possible rationale a revolutionary Palestinian fervor could have, right, and dismissing it as, as purely irrational and messianic and religious and whatever, right, um, it's also just saying, well, really, I can't talk to them, not only because I'm talking in English in an American uh, newspaper or whatever, but because um, they're not really interlocutors for me. The real interlocutors are the college students. What do that's who? What what do Ben Shapiro and Michael Walzer have in common? (laughs) (laughs) That's the title of this episode, by the way. (laughs) So, so yeah, again, it's a bit of this like policing um, of what can be said and not be said. by American college students by telling them that, you know, this kind of thing is not even within the domain of rationality, uh, these kinds of things. And that, that, that American leftists have kind of left the domain of, of rationality when they, you know, they say things like uh, oppressed people don't have moral obligations or they're not willing to say that oppressed people have some moral obligations or something like that. Which again is entirely a reaction by American college students to being policed. <laughs> Right, to being told con- condemn Hamas or else, and it's like I'm not going to do what you say. Like you're trying to police me. Like what the hell is this? <laughs> exactly. Again, another thing that that it's like that civility discourse stuff. It's like know your place, uh, shut up, and don't speak out about injustice. And you're like, wait a second, something's off here. I'm going to speak out, and the more you tell me not to speak out, the more fucking angry I'm going to get because you're you're trying to gaslight me and make me feel like I'm crazy. And I'm like, wait a second, but I'm seeing it. Like no, you know. So of course it's going to erupt in frustration and anger, especially when you're young and full of spit and vinegar or piss and vinegar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's amazing about and you know, I, I love, <laughs> I'm loving what I'm seeing from like young people on campuses right now. Um, in large part, not entirely, but like, what's great about it is they're actually doing the thing that he's saying ultimately should be done. Like when he says focus on the important points of the context, like like BLM did, right? It, it focused on the important context <laughs> of these things yeah. and not on like, you know, generically true, but not important, not salient things like all lives matter, right? Well, the college students who are being like, you're telling me I have to condemn Hamas or I can't get my lunch? Like, that's stupid. Why does that even matter? We can't do anything about Hamas. You know what we can do something about? The government who we like almost entirely unilaterally fund both with money and weapons. Like that's something we could actually do something about and have some leverage over. Like they're the ones focusing on the important points of the context that are significant and salient. The very thing he's saying that needs to be done. Uh, um, I know we're kind of going a little long here, and so maybe we maybe we do another episode on this. But what do you think about 
just the idea of justifying violence or justifying war in general, which is kind of Walter's, you know, kind of his his uh, his whole thing. Do you? Because because my whole take on this, and I think this is kind of something that's related to this, is that that I don't know if um, like the violence of the colonized is something that is justified in like the higher ethical sense, but that it's like it's not good, but it's necessary, or it is. It's a reality. It's rational. It's legitimate. But do we have to use the language of justification? Like, is there ever a way that we can say it's just to go to war or it's just to perpetrate violence? I mean, I think with that, that discourse has to happen. The important thing isn't to determine once for all whether or not certain categories of actions are justified. I don't even know that categories of actions can be justified. Depends upon the reasons, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. But the really important point, I think, is is that we don't deny agency on the part of the oppressed person, right? And so Walter is kind of implicitly claiming that American leftists are doing this by saying that oppressed people have no moral obligations or have no limits on their moral obligations, right? But I think Walter's actually the one who's doing that. He's denying the agency by saying that these kinds of violent acts are, all, are basically categorically irrational, right? Um, Rather than just jumping to whether or not certain categories of vaccines are justified, I want to talk about like, why would someone in these specific kinds of social conditions, deleterious, oppressed social conditions, horrific social, social conditions, what reasons are they going to have when they're sitting at home talking with their compatriots and their colleagues and their friends and their politicians and representatives and who else, right? Talking with the people, trying to figure out what should we do about this? What kind of reasons would they give themselves? What would they say? What would matter? Like, what would be persuasive? Some things would be persuasive and some things wouldn't. That means it's in the domain of the rational, right? It's giving back and forth of reasons for doing certain things. And that seems to me recognizing that fact and trying to understand, well, why did um, Hamas do the things that they did on 10-7, right? Uh, seems super important, even if you come out saying, yeah, that's a war crime, yeah, that was a completely, utterly heinous, horrific act, and it must be condemned. If you do come to that conclusion, then you have to do so through the like the medium of what were the reasons for which it was done, right? Rather than just dismissing it as irrational. And that whole trying to understand why uh, a person would engage in violence seems like the kind of thing it just people, in, especially in America, seem so uncomfortable with doing, as if understanding a thing means legitimizing it. Or justifying it, right? Which of course it doesn't mean that necessarily. I don't mean. I mean, ultimately, if you want to come down to like the conclusion, I have no idea if it's justified or not. It's too complicated. That's like totally fine. <laughs> that might be the the best answer we can give. But you have to get there through talking about the reasons for it, right? And what the rationale is, and coming to some explanation of of someone's agency. Yeah, yeah. I guess I tend I tend to think that I want to reserve the the term just for like the good. And maybe this is where I do kind of like, what the fuck, man, you coming to fucking Platonist. Um, but like, <laughs> I, I do want to reserve the term. Yeah. It's all in what? Oh, it's, 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 in, it's in all of us somewhere. The interplay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I want to reserve that term for like, you know, the, the kind of like highest ethical virtues that we are striving to create. Now, maybe we don't have a, a pure idea of what it means, but then maybe that's why you were saying, I, I don't know if it's fucking just. Like, I, I don't I, I don't know. But like, I kind of want to say, at least for now, 
that like, no, it's not just. Maybe violence is never just. That's why just war theory for me is is always so gross because it comes out of Catholic moral theory anyway, right? So I'm mm-hmm. like, mm, there's there's something here that fits into the logic of Christendom that I'm just, you know, I, that I don't think you can devoid just war theory from. And and so there's there's something imperial about this logic that it's like I, you can't separate it from that no matter how you try to justify it. And I'm just not sure that like there's such a thing as a just war or a just act of violence, a just act of armed resistance, a just act, you know, I'm not sure it's just. Does it mean that it was the right the, 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 the right thing to do considering the circumstances? Maybe that's different, you know? Well, that's the thing, right, is, okay, first of all, you can say that there's such a thing as a just war and that it's also never happened. That's perfectly consistent. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's also, it's yeah, also yeah. the view that I would take. Um, yeah, sure. There's such a thing as a just war. It's just not. It's not ever going to happen. Ever, 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 ever. It, oh, man, I, mean, I want to go that far. It's just never happened, and probably will never happen. But you never know. I'm going to keep an optimistic mind about the thing. But also, like, I mean, de- definition of terms here is important, right? Like, by just, we don't have to mean consistent with the heavenly ideal that would be the true and the highest good is enacted by God, right? That's not what just means for anybody but, like, I don't know, Plato, right, or whatever. Um, but even him, the conception of harmony is is something that takes place through the process of the dialectic, right? Not in the Hegelian sense, but, like, the kind of, like, static conception of the forms, you know, like, is that in, in Plato? Yeah, sometimes, but then also there's kind of some wiggle room there, you know, with, like, participatory ontology and the idea of mythexis rather than... Mimesis, you know, so like there's, there's, I don't know, like even, even that well, I'm kind of like, eh. Yeah, for sure. But again, it's, that's it's, just, you know, I'm, I'm just put, sitting up to the side as like, I guess someone could believe something like there's a purely static notion of yeah. justice and that's it. But that's, that seems totally unrealistic and not even worth considering really. The point yeah. about, about just thinking about just actions in war or justice, uh, just actions taken to go to war or whatever really just comes down to, I think for me, like what are the appropriate reasons to have? For doing certain things, like what are reasons that make sense and that overrule other reasons for doing things? It's a kind of deflationary notion of the idea, right? It's not about mimicking some absolute ideal. It's just about thinking about how reasons interact with one another, mm, mm. right? And that's, I think, totally appropriate to have in any moral situation, also in war. And it probably comes out that when you think about it, and this, you know, just war three is kind of famous for this, but like every paper and book written about just war theory. It's just about all the ways every single war that's ever happened has been unjust. <laughs> it's just kind of like, that's just how this happens, you know? Um, even by like milk toast liberals, <laughs> this is how it comes out. Um, and so like that, that actually I think is instructive. It's like, yeah, war is so bad that any attempt, even by milk toast liberals to talk about what justice in war would be, makes every single war unjust that's ever happened. <laughs> right? um, that's instructive because it means that, yeah, I mean, that's really how bad war is, right? That's that's the, the reasons you would have to have to actually rightfully engage in it are, are so high. Um, that speaks to its badness, right? So again, yeah, I don't think we have to think about this like uh, – static ideal conception of justice to, to talk about justice. We can just talk about it in, in regular old everyday terms. Hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering, this is the last thing I'm going to say, because it, it relates to this, but Walter does seem to say something along the lines of, I'll, I'll try to find it, but he talks about, like, obviously, when civilians are involved, it's it's horrible. He said, um, oh, God, it's towards the bottom here. Okay, here we go. He, he says, you know, um, about how, like, women and men, women and children, civilians... They're victims of war, and that's that's horrible. The terrorist strategy is terrible. And he does say, you know, like the firebombing of Dresden and the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, he, he criticizes them. Um, but then he says, like, many armies and many soldiers aim only at military targets and do what they can to avoid or minimize civilian injury and death. And then he says this is especially difficult when the enemy deliberately exposes its civilian population to the risks of combat. Of course, you know, the kind of human shields argument. But... I wanted to just focus on that one sentence where he says, like, many armies and many soldiers aim only at military targets and do what they can to avoid or minimize civilian injury and death. Is that, like, his way of inching towards his conception of what, like, a just combat would be? And and if so, I'm not even sure that, even if you were to say, like, cool, your combatants versus our combatants, they only fight each other, they only target military outposts, therefore, when that occurs... That's a just war. Or let's go back to like the ancient world. It's like your strongest person against our strongest person. They stab each other to death, and uh, the winner, that army wins, and that that like that's not even just too because it's all in the name of what protecting this bullshit imagined community that's arbitrarily established based on again that kind of like imperial or colonial logic. So again, I'm not even sure that that is actually a justification for any kind of engagement. You know what I mean? Oh, Walter. Yeah, Walter would, what, would even say that. I mean, he would. He. I mean, characteristically, the like the paradigmatic example of an unjust war uh, action in war is deliberately targeting um, non-combatants. Right. It's a prin- principle against attacking the defenseless. Is the classic principle in just war theory. Right. That doesn't mean yeah, that targeting yeah. combatants is just. That that doesn't follow at all. Okay. Right. Lots of other factors are at play. It just means that deliberately targeting non-combatants. Um, is paradigmatically unjust, right? There's like no reason why it could ever be just. And that's why he's saying terrorism is like by its very nature unjust because it's deliberately targeting non-combatants. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know if like the argument would be then that if it's like contracted combatants who are like, we will fight your side and you will fight our side and that was it, like would that be the conditions for a just war? No, not at all. There's many other... yeah, Many other... There's so many other ways that it goes wrong from there, right? Um, <laughs> again, it's, okay. the thing is that Walzer's. Uh, I mean, I'm not like an expert on on Walzer or on just war theory, but from what I know, Walzer's standards for just war are extremely high, and that's the that's the joke about how like there are only unjust wars. Oh yeah, and Israel's wars, because like basically everything is unjust according to these standards. Yeah, fucking hell. Okay, yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the main segment there. I mean, I'm sure there's so much more we could continue to talk about. But, um, yeah, we'll we'll put a link down in the show notes. Uh, I don't know. So, like, like it was weird. I couldn't access because I don't have an account for The Atlantic. But I couldn't access it on my desktop, but I could access it on my phone. Is that a thing? Like, you can read the articles on your phone but not on your desktop? Like, I used Instapaper, which is an app that saves um, articles for reading later. And if it... It, it bypasses those like uh, cutoffs when you says you have to, if you want to read more, you have to subscribe or whatever. It just saves the whole thing for you. So there are lots of websites that do that. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
because I was able to read it on my phone, but I wasn't able to get it on my desktop. But yeah, so anyway, we'll put a link to it. But um, it's by Michael Walzer, Even the Oppressed Have Obligations. Uh, yeah, give it a read and you can rage alongside with us as you uh, as you <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and close out the show with our final segment of the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a world that is just inundated with fucking horror and bad news and horrible imagery constantly. And maybe there's no fucking meaning. You know, maybe there is no meaning to any of this, but I don't know. Troy, do you have something that will lift our spirits and potentially give us a glimpse of life? Unfortunately, my sticky leaves is going to be just as uh, downtrodden and despairing as everything else in this episode has been. <laughs> is it Dude, like a I, sad album about some guy whose wife died again? Fucking hell, man. No, I'll talk about the new Sufjan album next time I have a sticky leaves. Um, <laughs> oh, no, did his wife die? No, but his partner did. Oh, fuck. Then did he write an album? What was that album a few years back? That he, the, uh, Black about Crow his- or whatever it was? Oh, that was Mount Erie you're thinking of. The crow looked at me, but his, his wife who died. Um, but Sufjan's yeah. mother died back in the mid-2010s, and he wrote that Carrie and Lowell album about that. Okay. Um, but anyway, have you seen Killers of the Flower Moon yet? No, I've not seen it yet. I really need to. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about it, the, the the plot and stuff on here. Um, but I, that's all right. We, I think it's a, based on a true story and based on a book that's been out for a long time. So I think, I think you can spoiler it away. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't want to do full spoilers. Also, we've, we've gone long on this episode, so I'll be relatively brief. It's a beautiful film and I absolutely adored it. And I was so glad that I went and saw it in theaters, even though it's three and a half hours long or whatever. Um, I'd love to talk with you more about it once you see it. Cause there's so much to, to digest from it. And this actually is kind of consistent in a way I didn't realize before with the conversation we've just been having about the Walter essay. There's been some criticism of the movie that it focuses a lot on the white characters, especially uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who's a morally despicable character, very clearly, um, and not on the victims, not on, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the tribe now. It's been a few weeks since I saw the movie. Um, the, the Osage. The Osage. Yeah, Osage. The Osage tribe. That's right. So it, it, it focuses a little bit less on the Osage um, uh, tribal members who were victimized and a little bit more on the on the victimizers, right? Especially Leo, Leo DiCaprio and uh, De Niro. And so there's this, you know, kind of classic criticism of like, we need to give, you know, more voice to the voiceless and stuff like that, which is always, I think, you know, uh, relevant and, and well-intentioned. I do think in this case that that criticism doesn't quite hold. And this is not to spoil anything. I just want to mention that, like, in general, you can do a lot by digging deep into the reasons why evil is done. And that is something that this movie does in a way that I thought was so incredibly effective. And Hmm. it asks these questions about why someone would do evil and heinous things. And how they can do them, how they can manage to do them, while possibly also holding in their hearts love or some kind of something akin to like love or care or affection or whatever, right? Some bit of humanity still left, even in someone who does incredibly heinous and evil things. And it's important to distinguish a form of doing that that sanitizes the evil 
and makes it like, yeah, they did the evil thing, but shouldn't we have mercy because they're actually good inside? They have like a child's heart or whatever, right? This is what you always hear when like a school shooter happens to be white and then you start talking about how, you know, he actually like loved his little sister and this, that, and the other and whatever, right? And instead, but you can also delve into the humanity of someone who does evil in a way that actually makes it like clear and apparent how the evil how evil it was right to do something to someone that you that you claim to love and that in some sense you believe you love that is completely and utterly inconsistent and and, and antithetical to love that brings out the evil in fact that is the evil right mm. um and so i think that the movie does an incredible job at delving into the character and the psychology of a person who's done incredible evil in a way that actually makes it clear in what sense it is evil, right? Rather than sanitizing it or excusing it or justifying it or even making sense of it in like in a way that's um, that would be sort of offensive. Um, I don't know that many movies have done that well. There's such a deep sort of moral wisdom, I think, in this movie that... I loved mm. so much and was so effective and that Scorsese, I think, is like mastering this. It's so funny because so many of his, I mean, you know so much about this because you've done like your, your Scorsese marathon on your movie podcast, right? Um, mm. But it seems to me like he, he was criticized a lot, I think, right, in the, in the 70s and 80s for being sort of amoral, right? Yeah. For like having these characters that, were, that, had, that he almost didn't like evaluate morally and they were obviously clearly terrible people. Well, and even like immoral that he was somehow like romanticizing or glamorizing oh, yeah. these despicable people. Or he was being immoral, but like the characters themselves um, yeah, yeah, yeah. are sort of amoral, right? They don't have any moral uh, sense to them at all, right? Um, and I always thought that was so wrong. And that given mm. Scorsese's Catholicism and stuff, he, I think he's a deeply, a deep moral thinker. He's just not. He's, oh my God, know, yeah. Yeah, he's just, he's, I mean, subtle, subtle is not the right word, but like, he doesn't, he's not preachy. He's not going to just like tell you, he wants to investigate <laughs> um, immorality, yeah. right? And like learn about it. I think it. once you know though that that's what he's doing, it feels very fucking obvious that he is just a moralist as a filmmaker. <laughs> like that's the stories that he's telling. It's like these are, this is like the evil that is inside all of us in that very sort of Catholic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this film and uh, Silence, did you see that? The one about the, oh, the so Catholic good. priest? I loved Silence. It's, I mean, it's my favorite Scorsese movie, I think, honestly. Um, it's brilliant. And um, oh, what was the other one I'm thinking of? There's like a trilogy of these that I think have moved him in this new direction. I can't think of it. But anyway, at least Silence and, um, and uh, Flower Moon have this kind of deep moral wisdom to them. Like he's actually come to some conclusions about like what uh, American morality actually is in ways that he was just kind of maybe hinting at with some of his more popular uh, earlier films. So yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I like would Wolf recommend Wall Street. Do you think? No, that's, that's a little bit more, I think still in that, that earlier phase um, of investigating immorality. Right. Irishman um, then. I mean, Irishman's in that, in that the late the late stage right but i actually don't remember irishman hardly at all <laughs> um, yeah. so maybe it belongs here maybe it doesn't i don't know you can tell me but um yeah i, I love the film 
everyone should go see it. Definitely see it in one sitting. Don't like take breaks, mm. take, like long breaks, or watch it over like three or four nights or whatever, like it's a mini series or something. The editor Elma Schoonmacher came out and was pissed at theaters for making intermissions because the whole point yeah. is to fucking watch the damn thing. It's okay. You you can sit still for three hours. It's possible. You can do it. It has this slow crescendo. It doesn't have any, you know, like. It has some some you know action scenes and some fireworks right, but it's, it doesn't crescendo as a film, uh, in like the yeah. in the big flamboyant way. But it has this sort of deep intellectual ruminating kind of crescendo that's devastating. I think. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I I adored it. I can't wait for you to see it, dude. I, I want to hear what you have to say about it. Are you yeah, gonna do I it for your movie podcast? It. Oh yeah, well, our, our we're we've had we're on a little bit of a hiatus right now because Raymond is uh, directing. He's in the middle of pre production for a film. But um, we, yeah, the, my hope was is that we were going to be able to like actually be caught up in his filmography because we're going through all of his narrative features. And my hope was is that we were going to be totally like, like up to like we were going to be finished with the filmography and, and ready to do Killers of the Flower Moon like when it came out. But we've just had so many delays and things. And so we've had to like do all kinds of other things that don't require as much preparation because there's quite a bit of preparation that goes for e- into each of our Scorsese mm. episodes. So yeah. um, so we're still we're only on like I think we're on Kundun next. So we're we're in the 90s still. Um, oh, I think. I'm doing uh, them in order. OK, yeah, yeah that's right. Oh yeah, we're doing them in chronological order, so we're still a ways away. Um, <laughs> I think that's I think that's where we are next. I can't remember what's next, but um, yeah, I really want to see it, and I, I read a lot of or, or a few of those criticisms as well, and then I also read some of the kind of replies to those criticisms, um, and and I think without having seen the film, speaking of Wolf of Wall Street, the thing that's so brilliant about what Scorsese does is he flips the camera he flips he flips the narrative onto the audience so that mm. you you feel your complicity in whatever the sins are that are being played out on screen so that you don't walk away from it immune like oh look at those bad people thank god i'm clean and pure and just right but that you feel the complicity because you enjoyed it so much because you enjoyed what the material benefits you know that offered you know like you know excessive capitalism in um you know, you know capitalist exploitation in wolf of wall street for example or you know um you know violence in cinema um or whatever so it's like, like that you feel a, yeah oh so it's like if you get titillated by this then you're you're sympathizing in a way um connecting exactly. with the kind of titillation that the characters would be getting from what they were doing exactly yeah 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 yeah, yeah, that's interesting because that's that that seems to be exactly what he's kind of inverting, or not inverting necessarily, but transforming in this later mm. era. Because it's less about like I'm gonna I'm gonna flamboyantly uh, portray evil actions on screen, and you'll be titillated by them, and then you'll still see your complicity or the fact that this is in all of us, right? This kind of uh, potential for evil, mm-hmm. but instead being like deeply investigating the internal psychology of of evil. And trying to understand how it happens, right? But then isn't so that, isn't there also the the moral critique, the kind of social critique that comes up and says, and this is what our country is founded on? Yeah, I think I think it's ultimately an evaluation of like this is American psychology, right? It's it's evil yeah. in this way, right? Which is I think what's mature about it compared to maybe some of 
Scorsese's other films. Not that the older films are immature, but like it was building to this. Like he was he was working mm. through some things to get to this notion of like um, this is this is what the internal psychology of of evil can look like, so that you can recognize it in yourself, right? So it's it's connected to the earlier stuff in that way. It seems like. Yeah, which is different because Wolf of Wall Street, there's the literal reversal of the camera at the end where after Jordan Belfort, this fucking white-collar criminal, after he goes to jail, but then he's out and he kind of gets away with everything because now he's doing seminars with all of these like really eager people that are like li- mm-hmm. that are hanging on every word he says and the camera turns to the audience and it floats over the audience who are in this stupor that are just entranced by this person's words. And it makes me think of like the Gary V's of the world and the Tony Robbins of the world and the, all these people that we just like hang on their words, but really they're just, you know, emblematic of a system that is exploitative, whether psychologically or economically or whatever, you know? And he's kind of like, yeah, this, we do this because we enjoy that shit. Cause we enjoy the spoils. Cause we wish we could party like he partied or have the helicopters or whatever, you know? And that's, that's what you get with like the end of Wolf of Wall Street. It's like an explicit turn on the audience. And it's like, yeah, that's you. You 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 enjoy that shit, you know. You're not yeah, it, do, it does seem like what, what's what's different about the the more recent films is that where that that kind of um, accusation or evaluation, like the Wolf of Wall Street style, could be a bit like non action guiding. <laughs> like it's kind of disabling, right? It's kind of accusatory. Because mm. um, uh, because Jordan Belfort's like lost, like nothing nothing to be done there, right? Um, but <laughs> yeah. But what's 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 interesting, I think, about the deep moral wisdom in, in Flower Moon is that it's it's very clearly cast as evil, and it could not be viewed otherwise. It's not sanitizing whatsoever, right? Um, but it's understanding the evil in a deep way, such mm. that an individual could see it in them without thinking like, "Oh, well, that's disabling. What am I going to do? I'm lost." So it's not satire. Is it's, is yeah. kind of what he was trying. It's not yeah. satire. There's something much more earnest. He's moved away from the satire, I think, and that's uh, in order to accomplish this kind of transformation. It seems like very interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because a lot of people miss it in like Wolf of Wall Street and in you know mm-hmm. Taxi Driver and stuff like that. They don't get that it's a critique, right? Because yeah. they they're like oh we had so much fun and and then he gets frustrated he's like if you don't understand the critique he's like then you missed the point and a lot of people miss it because maybe it's precisely what you said because it's not actionable so you sit there and you kind of like what i'm supposed to just feel like a dirtbag no way i'd rather just feel like i had fun watching a guy (laughs) and his exploits you know so it's like you internally resist the critique because it's not clearly actionable whereas with this you maybe you can't help but walk away and be like, "Oh fuck, that's evil," and that's where evil comes from, and and yeah, and that's what has built our country on that evil, and we need to do better. Yeah, you you walk away saying it's evil, and I could see it in myself, rather mm. than just like you know, um, it was titillating or something like that. I can't imagine anybody walking away from Flower of the Moon and being like, "Yeah, I was entertained," <laughs> and that's it, you know. <laughs> I'm going to join the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting that I I guess the book that it was based on um, was largely cast through the the cop, the FBI agent character. It's kind of a, you know, investigatory nonfiction book. And Scorsese changed the script um, to make it about 
uh, Leo's character, who's the husband of one of the Osage um, women. Um, so yeah. it's very clear that this was not supposed. This is he's the central character because we're investigating his psychology and seeing ourselves in it. I think is the idea. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No, I I can't wait to see it. I just have not done so yet, but uh, I will. I must. I shall. Well, sick. Um, well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Owls at Dawn. We are back, and we are going to be fucking pumping these episodes out. So, yeah, stay tuned. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Uh, you can head over to Patreon and throw us some pennies if you're able to support us. Patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything else you want to say, dude. Uh, just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vidania Amerikanski. Yeah!